This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget we're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to hear our latest interviews. Now, if you're joining us on Thursday, the 24th of December 2020, we'd of course like to wish you a happy Christmas. But what if today was pre-Christian or even prehistoric? Well, joining me to talk about how many pagan winter customs continue to play their part in Christmas traditions 2,000 years later is English Heritage Trustee and Professor of History at the University of Bristol, Ronald Hutton. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Let's start by explaining what we mean when we're talking about paganism and pagans. So what are those two terms? means two different things. If they don't have a capital letter, usually it means the people who observe the pre-Christian religions of Europe and the Middle East, the ancient, the old religions of uh, that large region. If it has a capital P, it means people today who call themselves pagans and observe religions recently appeared but based upon old images and ideas which draw upon some of the ancient traditions. Okay, and what are some of those ancient traditions? Well, in the case of the midwinter feast, it means observing the traditional hailing of the return of the sun, the promise of the coming of new life, and the fertile, bewitching, and sometimes rather scary darkness of the midwinter nights. If we look back into prehistory, what evidence is there of the customs of Britain's earliest settlers at this time of year? There's a huge amount. The three greatest prehistoric monuments of the three great historic kingdoms of the British Isles are all aligned on the midwinter sun. The greatest prehistoric monument of Ireland is New Grange, the New Stone Age passage tomb by the River Boyne, which is aligned on the rising sun at midwinter. The equivalent in Scotland is Maze Howe, an enormous New Stone Age passage grave in Orkney, which is aligned upon the setting sun at midwinter. And Stonehenge was aligned even more vividly upon the midwinter sunset than it is upon the midsummer sunrise. But the collapse of the stones on that side of the circle has spoiled the effect, whereas the rising sun at midsummer can still be beautifully aligned with the stones. Is the difference between Stonehenge and those two other sites in Scotland and Ireland that Stonehenge is a circle, the others are long barrows? The others are are round barrows. They're enormous round mounds with long stone-built passages and chambers inside, with the passages aligned on the midwinter sun, as said. And yes, Stonehenge is an open-plan version of it. And of course, as we've covered in previous podcasts, including the ones that you've appeared on, the winter solstice is one of the key events in the Stonehenge prehistoric calendar. Can you describe what would have happened during that time? We know a lot more now than we did about uh, 20 years ago because of uh, recent excavation. Enormous numbers of people will have gathered inside the huge round earthwork we call Durrington Walls, a few miles to the northeast of Stonehenge, and they would have held enormous pork barbecues. We know because we found the pig bones. They'd have put up alongside each other in custom-built seasonal huts, 
and at midwinter they'd have processed together along the Stonehenge Avenue to the stones and held rituals. And at that moment it all goes dark because we don't know what rituals they held. But there was, we think, a lot of feasting going on due to the evidence of the pig bones being found. Huge amounts. And the pigs concerned and some cattle were driven there across enormous distances in some cases. So this is a real gathering of the clans, driving their herds with them, ready for an enormous barbie. Why do you think the setting sun was so important to be marked by Neolithic people thousands of years ago? And and why was it more important, do you think, than the midsummer sun? The rising and setting sun are both important at midwinter, hence the rising sun being the focus in Ireland at Newgrange. But midwinter has this double character. First, it's the more scary, the more achingly meaningful festival, the fear that you're going down to darkness and the darkness will probably diminish and the light return. But that's not absolutely guaranteed. And while you're there, you need a lot of cheering up. But also, it's a time in the agricultural year, and there's not a lot of work to do. So people are free to hold a party. Yes, I was going to ask about that. Is this also a celebration that is largely linked to the agricultural calendar and to the sort of marking and looking forward to better weather to come, sunshine to come? I'm afraid the straight answer to that is just yes, you've put it beautifully. So it's interesting that um, they're marking the beginning of almost spring in midwinter, but looking very much forward because it's probably not going to come for another three months. Yeah, they're looking forward to spring arriving after the most unpleasant time of the entire year. So you need to have a blowout in order to nerve yourself up to get through January and February. How similar then were prehistoric people's beliefs to those of the Romans who followed them? Pretty well identical. The Romans have a core empire in much warmer lands than we have in the north. But the same issue of uh, diminishing heat, diminishing light obtains there. The Roman festivals we know a lot more about because the Romans were literate and so have left records. And they had an enormous wild party called Saturnalia, which was from the 17th to the 23rd of December and was all about fun and games and misrule and misbehavior. It's lightening up, it's letting go. It's a return to the innocence of an imagined ancient golden age when everybody was at peace and there was no oppression. And then everybody nurses their hangovers and their bruises and waits to see the sun start to return. And about a week after the end of Saturnalia, it's plainly doing so. So they hold a birthday party for it called the Kalendai, which is on the 1st of January, and that's their original New Year. And so the feeling we have now as the minutes tick towards midnight on the 31st of December really is thousands of years old. That brings a whole new sense to the calendar that we have, obviously, today. Saturnalia, though, the name, where does that come from? It comes from the god Saturn, the Roman god of uh, the Golden Age and the infancy of humanity, the god who ruled before there were such things as cities and warfare and jealousy and industry. 
an imagined age of the most peaceful, delightful, possible, noble savages. And that's the spirit which people were trying to recapture at his feast. Is there any reference during Saturnalia to the agricultural calendar as well, the the idea of everything turning dark? Not really. The reference is to being in the darkness itself, being in the heart of it, and therefore feeling freed to be innocent and young again. Let your hair down and have fun. So how would you say the difference is between Saturnalia and the prehistoric Neolithic winter solstice celebrations? How would you characterise their differences? It's impossible to do so, alas, because we don't really know very much about what exactly happened at the prehistoric Northern European festivities. We know that they would have involved feasting, because we find the remains of the feasts, and drinking, and getting together, uh, families, communities, and religious rituals as well. But it's the religious rituals we've lost. But at least Saturnalia shares feasting with the Stonehenge people. It absolutely does. And the Stonehenge people would probably have decorated their homes or their their temporary living spaces and dressed up and done the kind of things that we do for parties through the ages. Okay. So in terms of the Saturnalia festivities, what evidence survives of what they did do during those few days in December? Well, three of our core modern Christmas celebrations come down from Saturnalia. The first is giving presents, which people at Saturnalia actually did at New Year at the Calendai as uh, the next step from Saturnalia. The other is Christmas decorations. Uh, People decorated their temples and probably their houses for festivals, including Saturnalia. And the third is feasting. So Christmas dinner, Christmas decorations and Christmas presents look like a timeless prehistoric unit. These uh, decorations that would have gone up, would they have been evergreen, similar to what we have today? Certainly in Northern Europe, because they last all through the Middle Ages and down to the last couple of hundred years. Holly and Ivy were the two great evergreens of choice in the North, simply because they're by far the most abundant in the woods. You don't hear a lot about mistletoe until the 18th century, because it's relatively rare We think we know that the Druids held mistletoe to be sacred, the Druids being the ancient priests of northern Europe, but only when they found it growing on an oak tree, and then not in any special time of year. It's whenever they found it on an oak, they went wild and held a ritual to gather it. The custom of kissing under the mistletoe actually emerged in London among servants in the late 18th century, when mistletoe was becoming a common upper middle class decoration. And rather sportingly, the uh, masters and mistresses of the households, instead of forbidding their servants to snog, (laughs) imitated them. Yes, I think that's one of the most fantastic stories that really needs to be turned into a Christmas play or or TV programme for Christmas Day. As we move forward through time, we've obviously covered Neolithic Stone Age Man, that sort of winter solstice period. We've talked about Saturnalia now as well. We've talked about some of those similarities with Christmas that we have today. But in between that period, still way back in history, we have the Saxons and the Vikings. Uh, They converted to Christianity. How did their pagan beliefs differ from those of the Romans here in England? 
a loss and a lack. They didn't take on writing until they converted to Christianity. So we have no details about their midwinter festivals, but we do have their names, one of which is still with us, the name that the Norse, the Scandinavians, alias the Vikings, had for their midwinter feast was Yule. We actually don't know what it means. There's all sorts of arguments that are never settled, but we still have that name today. And the Anglo-Saxon name for the feast is now lost to popular knowledge, but it's actually quite beautiful and haunting. It's Modranicht, which probably, probably means the mother night, which is a wonderful concept for the primal darkness of midwinter that gives birth to the year. It's possible that it means the night of the mother or the night of the mothers, but I think the connotation is the same. Yes, that's very sort of, um, as you say, sort of enveloping the blackness, but also giving rise to something to look forward to, something nurturing, something that's going to give birth eventually to uh, some positivity as the darkness dissipates. Was there a big change between the Roman celebrations of midwinter, the Saxons and Vikings? Are there any similarities? As far as we know, they seem very similar indeed. It looks as if the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons would have had the feasting and the decoration. In fact, we we know they have both because when they emerge into history, that's what they're doing at midwinter. They don't give presents, but feasting religious rituals to their own deities and decorating homes and temples are all there. Did the focus on winter as a time of celebration continue under them? I mean, did they really let themselves go? Well, they carried on as before, but uh, like the native British, like the Romans, they converted to Christianity. And so you have the same secular communal trappings of midwinter as before, which is why we still have them today. But with the Christian church services to celebrate the nativity added on. But there are other customs that emerge into history in the Middle Ages, which are probably prehistoric, but we just have our first records of them, like wassailing, Mm -hmm. which is the English name given to the custom of singing to whatever makes your farm work in order to make it fruitful and happy in the coming year and have a good harvest. So if you rely on corn growing, you sing to your cornfields. If you keep bees, you sing to the beehives. If you keep livestock, you sing to your animals in their winter quarters. And this is the only bit of it that continues today. If you grow fruit trees, you sing to them. Yes. Sounds a bit like Prince Charles talking to his plants at Highgrove. But um, would that have involved just the farmer talking to the animals or would villagers come and visit the farm and make an event of it? depends on the farmer and how friendly the farmer is but uh, it's usually a chance to have the friends round and mix the families and uh, have a sing song and a party i think that's a fantastic way of trying to get your tree to bear plenty of fruit uh, once uh, the blossom comes and the spring comes i must admit so wassailing is actually also a really good way of getting in a good mood when the days are short and dark really as well isn't it Yeah, the whole of the midwinter festival and everything it does is getting into a good mood and a gloomy season. And the word wassail is simply the Anglo-Saxon for cheers. It's a toast. Be you healthy.
Yes, and I suppose we do the similar thing today, don't we, in, in Northern Europe and in France. When you drink a glass of wine, you'll say santé, which means health. In Spain, you'll say salud, which means the same thing. So, yeah, it's all that sort of thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, we're literally drinking a health. Now, other traditions that emerge over time after the Anglo-Saxons and Vikings, I want to touch on this idea of caroling, which is a sort of spin-off from wassailing, isn't it, really? Can you tell us a bit more about the origins of caroling? Well, they start in a different place. The carol was originally a round dance of people with joined hands, which seems to have been invented by St. Francis's people, the Franciscan friars, as a means of dancing together in a ring while singing songs in praise of God and Jesus. They seem to have imported it into England, and then it lost the dance after a couple of hundred years taken up by the local people, and the songs remained instead. And they weren't specifically seasonal. There, there were May carols, there were Halloween carols, there were midsummer carols, as well as Christmas carols. But Christmas has remained the festive season par excellence, and the carols have lingered there, whereas they died out at the other festivals. We're going to talk about one of the key figures of the modern Christmas story, and certainly a popular figure among big kids and children. That's Father Christmas. Is the image of St Nicholas a Christian invention, or was there a pagan precedent for this too? There could have been ancient pagan traditions of deities who go around making gifts at midwinter, but we actually have no solid evidence of them. This is speculation. We can say that Father Christmas appears in 1616 as a literary character developed to represent the spirit of Christmas merrymaking and oppose the Puritans who wanted to abolish Christmas at that time. But he doesn't give presents and he isn't interested particularly in children. He's about adult feasting and games. The person who introduces the presents is St. Nicholas the medieval Christian patron saint of children, but he doesn't do it at Christmas. He does it in many countries, not in all, on the eve of his festival, which is the 6th of December. In Dutch, St. Nicholas is Santa Claus, Santa Claus. The Dutch founded the city which becomes New York when the English conquer it. And it's in New York in 1821 that a local poet and academic, Clement Clark Moore, writes a poem for his children in which he transforms the medieval saint riding on a horse wearing his red bishop's robe into an amazing spirit of the northern midwinter with a beard and a trimmed furry outfit riding in a sleigh drawn by reindeer with a sack of presents he brings down the chimney on christmas eve to give to children so santa claus the present day is a new yorker and the product of the pen of a talented academic uh, the poem becomes famous the american santa claus spreads across the united states and he crosses the atlantic to britain in the 1880s and blends with the native figure of Father Christmas. So that's a very long evolution of this character, really, which seems to draw from various cultural sources and then gives us this modern version through this poem. 
That's exactly right. Uh, that's why it was, I think, my longest answer to a question of yours. Yes, but as you can tell, it draws on so many different sources uh, to get to the final thing that we end up with today. The arrival of Christianity brought Christmas as the main winter festival, of course, and the Victorians are often credited with starting many of the traditions that we observe today. Is this not the case, though? The Victorians are responsible for our modern Christmas, but in the long view, Christmas customs get a makeover once every few hundred years as people get bored with the last lot. So the package we have now, the cards, the tree, the stocking, the presents, Santa Claus, they all come together in the period between 1830 and 1890. And it's not until the 1950s, really, that the entire population adopts them, because only then are people's incomes high enough to afford the whole package. And, of course, the Victorian edition of the turkey is uh, the centre of Christmas dinner. And so the familiar family Christmas we have now for the bulk of the population is only about 70 years old. So given another couple of hundred years, that package will be jettisoned and will have another set of customs in their place. Mm. And while we celebrate this Victorian-style Christmas, how much of it would you say is pagan derived? Three great elements we're certain of and they are the core elements of the family Christmas and they are the dinner, the presents and the decoration. So that all comes from the feasting from Stonehenge potentially, the gift giving from Saturnalia, what are the other parts? Well only the decorations, so the people at Stonehenge all over Europe would have had the feasting and the decorations Mm. and it's the Romans at the Calendai, the New Year, that uh, brought in the presents. Just for the record, Christmas presents were given at New Year, not Christmas, until the late Victorian period when Santa Claus turned up and they got relocated to Christmas. The last person in the United Kingdom, as far as we know, still to give New Year's gifts and not Christmas presents was Queen Victoria, who maintained stolidly that these were New Year's gifts, not Christmas presents, until the hour of her death. Right. And would those New Year's gifts be given on the 1st of January or the 6th, as in Twelfth Night? On the 1st, to bring in the New Year. The whole point about the New Year's gifts is that they're blessings. If the gifts are acceptable, they make everybody who receives them go into the new year feeling good about things. So can you tell us about the significance of Twelfth Night then? It's a traditional time for partying. It's the last night of the medieval 12-day Christmas holiday. And so it's time for one last enormous party and the closure of the feast. So you come out feeling good. And after Twelfth Night, not on Twelfth Night, you take down your Christmas decorations. Twelfth Night was at times an even bigger business than Christmas. Around 1800, Christmas had died down and become quite a quiet festival, whereas Twelfth Night was the one that everybody celebrated. Now, are there any other traditions that are pagan-derived that endure today as winter customs? There aren't any, really, except feasting, decorations and presents and possibly the wassailing, the singing to apple trees and originally other things to make them fruitful. There are traditional festivities like the village mama's play found in 
near a thousand communities across southern and central England in the early 19th century. And we used to think that these were prehistoric, but actually we now know the Mummer's Play seems to be an 18th century invention. That's why it was an early 19th century craze. But although the exact form of festivities differs over the years, there's usually a reinvention every few centuries, the basic forms are still there. So the Mummer's Play may not be Neolithic, but there would have been plays, and there were plays at Christmas from the very beginning. And although the centerpiece of the Christmas dinner has shifted in the last couple of hundred years to a turkey, there was still a midwinter feast before that. Christmas carols may be largely 19th century now, but there were songs at Christmas ever since prehistory. There were dances, there were games, and so it goes on. And I think that all ties into the idea that we need to keep ourselves jolly at a pretty grim and gloomy and dark and dismal time of year where nothing grows. Yeah. Yes, midwinter is always, until the axis of the planet shifts, going to be a time of lack of daylight, lack of warmth, often considerable damp and dirt, mud, claustrophobia of people who can't get away until quite recently and are stuck in their communities with the same people, often very bored because there isn't a great deal to do. And of course, before modern times, whereas now we have the threat of uh, winter flu and uh, respiratory infections, there are all sorts of epidemics which swept through ancient and medieval midwinters that could pose a real risk to health. So winter is always going to be a rather depressing and claustrophobic time. Mm. And before the present day, it was often a lethal time too. So I suppose in some respects, if you can celebrate being alive and not being ill and being healthy and drinking and eating and making sure that you've got plenty of energy and sustenance, then that's a good thing. Yes, and you've just expressed the thoroughgoing, timeless incredibly powerful impetus behind having a midwinter celebration. Going back to um, why some of these winter customs might have fallen by the wayside, what do you think some of the main reasons are for some ancient winter customs surviving and not surviving? The things that survive are the basics, decorating your home and or your sacred place, making blessings of people at midwinter, um, above all, giving gifts and getting together as a community or a family or an extended family or a clan and feasting, making merry, having games. Mm. So th those are the basic forms. But human beings are endlessly creative. So the exact forms of them need to get changed at fairly regular intervals. And it's usually a makeover every two to three hundred years. So it seems to me that marking midwinter is just pretty central to the human experience. If there wasn't Christmas, there'd be something else. <laughs> what do you think? Well, once there wasn't Christmas and there was something else, mm. and there's a whole range of different faiths that have their midwinter feasts, feasts of light and merrymaking and celebration. Uh, Hanukkah and Diwali immediately come to mind, but there are many more in different faiths. So are you looking forward to the darkest day and um, 
the coming of longer and lighter days and eventually spring, Ronald? I'm certainly looking forward to the coming of spring, but so is everybody at the present time, because in the coming year, it has a promise to it, which Mm. goes way beyond the usual benefits of spring itself. The symbolism of opening up the tomb at Easter will have a supercharge for many of us if we can get vaccinated in time. And the older symbolism behind that of the opening of the earth with the buds and the flowers and the birdsong is going to have a particular charge of joy this coming year if everything goes well. Well, it is a difficult time of year, I must admit. It's uh, dark and sometimes wet and cold, sometimes foggy. You never know what the British or English weather is going to bring. But um, hopefully plenty of good health for 2021 for everyone here and around the world. And I think on that note, Ronald, we should perhaps uh, wassle or, or drink a toast. What do you think? I think that's an excellent note and an excellent suggestion on which to close. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll find out the story behind the calendar that we use today and why the way we measure time was changed. It's called Gregorian because it was revised by Pope Gregory. Originally, the Julian calendar, as it was then called, was promulgated by Julius Caesar. It had actually got a bit out of sync by the time we got through to the 16th century, so it was adjusted by Pope Gregory. Thanks for listening. See you next time.